Welcome to the Emergency Medicine Cases podcast with your host, Dr. Anton Hellman, bringing you Canada's brightest minds in emergency medicine from EMC Studios in Toronto. There are a few things you can hear overhead that get my blood pumping quite so much as those four little words, code white emergency department. There's a special place in the emergency doc's brain for the agitated patient, and that place is located right between the panic and poise centers. Hey, I never said I was a neurologist. The reason these patients may evoke a particularly visceral response are many. They're complex. They can be psychiatric patients, or they can be medical patients, or they can be trauma patients, or all of the above. They can be old or young, frail or physically imposing. And to make things all the more critical, they are themselves in danger and they endanger your team. So to help ease your discomfort, today we have two familiar voices to EM cases, Dr. Ruben Strayer, well-known educator and creator of EM Updates from New York, and Dr. Margaret Thompson, Medical Director of the Ontario Poison Control Centre, who are going to show us exactly how much more there is to the agitated patient than the old 5 and 2 of haloperidol and lorazepam. Let's jump into our first case. You're working a relatively quiet night shift in your small suburban ED when you hear a man loudly yelling a series of profanities from the triage area. You go out to triage and see a man who looks to be about 20 years old stumbling around with a ripped bloody stained t-shirt. He looks sweaty and flushed. The triage nurse tells you that he was dropped off in the ambulance bay by a bunch of guys in a sports car who immediately took off. You keep your distance and calmly ask, how can I help you, sir? The man starts to lunge towards you and yells, you're dead. At which time, two security guards grab his arms. He spits in the face of one of them. They pull him towards the area of your ED where psychiatric patients typically are seen and ask if you want five-point restraints. So for the listeners, how would you manage the patient at this point? What meds would you give? Would you put him in restraints? What would you say to him? How would you go about examining him and getting his vitals? What are the immediate life-threatening diagnoses that you're thinking of? And what tests would you order? Dr. Thompson, let's start with you. What are you thinking at this point in terms of the case? This is what's going through your head. Just to qualify, I'm also an emergency physician, and so this would be a real case in my emergency department. And my first reaction would be, why am I on this night shift, and why didn't I trade it off? Right. That being said, one of the things that concerns me about this case is, you know, taking him to a psychiatric area when I have a completely undifferentiated, anxious, agitated, violent patient in front of me. I consider that to be a medical emergency and not a psychiatric emerge, and so I would want him in a room where I can monitor him medically. And things to be going through my head would be, you know, I don't want this guy to arrest, number one. You know, please, God, don't let him arrest. This guy can escalate. He can be an excited delirium, which is a real extreme, and can arrest in front of my eyes, and I have no vitals or anything on him. I guess another thing is, how am I going to get those vitals? He's agitated and violent. How am I going to calm him down so I can make do a proper assessment of him? 
What don't I want to miss? How can I keep everybody safe? Myself, the patient, all the staff that are in the emergency department. Those are all the kinds of things that go on in my head at once. Absolutely. Some of those same things are going through my head. Dr. Strayer, anything to add there? Well, I love how Margaret started off with differentiating this patient from the psychiatric emergency patient. Agitation is not a psychiatric emergency. Agitation is a cardinal presentation that, in most emergency departments, more often heralds intoxication or other forms of delirium than like a primary psych diagnosis. And this has been a challenge for us in evolving our strategies to managing agitation in the emergency department because by far the majority of the literature on this topic comes out of psychiatry, which is a very different environment. Their patients are generally understood. The etiology of their agitation or their behavioral disturbance is understood. They generally don't have immediate life threats. And none of that can be said for this type of patient who presents to emergency departments routinely. So I echo everything that Margaret just said about this patient. And when I see this patient, what I'm focused on are two questions. Firstly, how controllable is this patient given the personnel resources that we have at this moment? And how likely is he to harm himself or others? And then also, at the same time, I'm wondering how likely is it that this patient has a dangerous medical condition? And my next actions are going to depend on the answers to those two questions. All right. So these patients should be seen as medical patients who have potential serious morbidity slash mortality rather than psychiatric patients. And we're going to get into all the medications, the calming medications, and how to uh, best calm these patients down so that you can get your vital signs and do your assessment. But before we do that, our young agitated man in this case I presented is pretty out of control, but sometimes it's not that obvious how agitated they are. So when it comes to agitation scales and categories, there's all kinds of things out there. There's the behavior activity rating scale, the sedation assessment tool, the agitated behavior scale, the overt aggression scale. So I don't think any emergency physician would be expected to know these scales, but I think it is important to understand how to assess the degree of agitation because that's going to dictate how you treat the patient. So Dr. Strayer, how do you suggest that we categorize agitation, practically speaking, in the ED to help guide our management? I think the scales are important for research, but not as relevant for clinical practice. And I divide these patients into three groups, mild, moderate, and severe agitation. The mildly agitated patients I call agitated, but cooperative. The moderately agitated patients I call disruptive patients without concern for a dangerous condition or disruptive without danger. And then the severely agitated patients are the kind that I group into the category of excited delirium. And I tailor my therapies and my agitation management strategies to the degree of agitation based on those three categories. And I think a lot of the trouble I've had trying to disseminate information on this topic is that the recommendations that I've made around the care of the severely agitated patient are often extrapolated to less severely agitated patients, and they're not designed for that group. So the most common example is in the use of ketamine, which is probably appropriate for many patients with severe agitation and excited delirium, but is much less appropriate for less agitated patients. So, so let's dig into that a little bit. How do you distinguish the patient who is moderately agitated from the patient who's severely agitated that requires immediate sedation with, say, ketamine? So deciding who 
has excited delirium or is severely agitated is something that's really hard, I think, for inexperienced clinicians to do. I think it's important to recognize that excited delirium is a diagnosis that we make in retrospect and that you don't know at the outset necessarily that this patient has quote-unquote excited delirium. There are important features of excited delirium syndrome that I think that most emergency docs and pre-hospital providers can, can clue into. And that has to do firstly with the degree of agitation. Excited delirium patients are not just screaming and shouting, they're often thrashing. They're thrashing around impervious to pain, impervious to fatigue. The excited delirium patient is unable to maintain any sort of attention and cannot be engaged even briefly. They're not just angry, they're incoherent. The excited delirium patient is much more likely to have abnormal vital signs, severely abnormal vital signs. But if you have to have five guys hold down the patient in order to get vital signs, that means you're more likely to be dealing with an excited delirium patient. It can often be tough. Drunks exist to embarrass emergency docs. Many of us have been burned by seeming simple intoxicants that have turned out to have dangerous conditions. So when you're not sure, it's reasonable to err on the side of treating as excited delirium and treat it as though there may be a dangerous condition underlying the agitation or coincident with the agitation. But the question of who's just drunk and needs to sleep it off and who needs immediate control and resuscitation is a tough one. If you look at the American College of Emergency Physicians definition for excited delirium, you look at a lot of the literature for excited delirium, in fact, very few of those patients make it to the emergency department alive. And there are very few case reports where patients in the emergency department in true excited delirium actually go on to survive. They have severe metabolic acidosis and electrolyte disturbances, hyperthermia, dehydration, et cetera, et cetera. And those are the ones when I see at the front desk that thereby the grace of God go, I, I don't want him in my emergency department where he's going to die on me in five minutes. Those are the ones that really worry me. And those are the ones that need immediate sedation attention. But most emergency physicians are never going to see that kind of a patient in their career. I've done a fair bit of medical legal sort of consultations for the coroner's office, and a number of those cases were excited delirium secondary to toxins, intoxicants. And what Reuben is saying in terms of the you know, imperviousness to pain, et cetera, I recall patients that pulled a stop sign out of the ground, you know, the eight-foot stop sign, pulled that out and started beating cars with that, wasn't held down by 10 police officers. And obviously, you have to call the police because they're dangerous to others and themselves. Those are the patients that we're very rarely going to see, but obviously need some very rapid sedation. So before we get into the medications for calming a patient down, let's talk about the non-pharmacologic approaches to calming an agitated patient. Now, Dr. Thompson, you have this amazing, smooth, calming voice and approachable demeanor. How would you go about using verbal de-escalation for this agitated patient? 
my approaches to, you know, the calm environment, one person being responsible for interacting with this particular patient, I'm responsible in that emergency department, I would approach that patient and introduce myself and ask them how I could help them. Why is it that they came to the emergency department? Is there anything I can get them? Try to take away other influences or distractions and have a one-on-one conversation with them. For better or worse, and it's probably for worse, in my role, in my environment, I don't spend a lot of time trying to talk down patients. If I can't calm someone down in a couple of minutes, I'm probably going to move to calming medications. But I've had the best success with saying things like, I'm Ruben, I'm your doctor, I'm here to help you. How can I help you? What can I do to make you more comfortable? I, of course, offer them juice in a sandwich, and I try to relate to them in a human way that makes them understand that I'm on their side. And after a couple of moments of that, I can generally tell whether this is someone that's going to be receptive to those types of approaches or not. All right. So some of the things we can do is talk to them in the way that you've described. You can offer them some food. Dr. Thompson, you had mentioned one person. I can imagine that having five people talking to a person who's agitated at once would probably just make them more agitated. So sort of like uh, in any team situation in the emergency department, you need sort of a team leader and you really have to understand what the roles are of each person. And especially with the agitated patient, is there some sort of role assignment? You know, let's say you have this person who's extremely agitated. You've got your nurses, you've got your security We've already established that you're going to be the person who talks to them and not multiple people talking to them at once. I imagine at the hospitals that you work at where you get lots of these kinds of patients that kind of everyone already knows what to do. But in those hospitals where they might not see that many patients, how can you get your team prepared for a patient like this? Well, I don't work currently in a small hospital that may only have two people there, but I think one of the clues or keys would be to get as many people as you can. My personal opinion, if the police have brought this person in, have the police stay. If the paramedics have brought this person in, have the paramedics stay to assist you in the department. There should be, you know, roles established in some kind of, you know, exercise in the emergency department ahead of time, anticipating, you know, your multiple trauma patient, your arrest patient, your your agitated patient are all sorts of, you know, mock sim situations that should have occurred in these emergency departments. But I don't work in those circumstances. Once we call the code white at triage, then in my emergency department, everybody has a designated role because we've gone through those sim circumstances before. Again, I want to emphasize the distinction between the mildly agitated patient who maybe comes in with police because he voiced some suicidal concerns and then the code white patient who comes in being held down by seven dudes. When you're dealing with a mildly agitated patient who often comes in ambulatory, escorted in by the police or even comes in by him or herself, I like to get those patients one-on-one. If there's police involved, I like to ask them to step away. I think that really helps to de-escalate the situation and utilize some of the techniques that we just talked about. When you're talking about someone who comes in on a gurney being held down, that's an entirely different patient, and that patient requires a protocolized, code-white-type approach, the kind that Margaret just outlined, where everyone should 
know their role, people assemble to bedside from wherever they are in the department, and you have a coordinated response that includes security, it includes physicians or a physician, it includes nursing or a nurse, mental health workers if you have them available, your technicians, and everyone knows sort of where they're going and what they're doing, where they're going to be holding down the patient, who's going to get the meds, who's making the orders, and so forth. Digging a little bit more into Code White, I sometimes see Code Whites being called perhaps on patients who a Code White didn't need to be called on, and it tends to then escalate the agitation. What are the indications for calling a Code White exactly? I would say that a Code White should be called when you identify severe agitation as defined by the criteria that we talked about before, someone who requires multiple people to hold them down, who seems like an immediate threat to himself or others. This can get a little bit confusing with the patient who right at this moment is not requiring restraints or doesn't require people to hold him or her down, almost always a him, but looks like they might very soon escalate to that. And in that case, there may be some value to calling a concealed code white, where you, for example, make phone calls to security and your charge nurse rather than overheading code white if you think that might further escalate the situation. That's a small minority of these cases. Almost all of them come in already being held down. And that's your clue that they're requiring an aggressive, multi-person response to their agitation. And that type of response needs to continue in the emergency department and beyond. All right. Yeah, that's a great pearl about the concealed code white. I think that would prevent these occasional cases where, you know, sometimes I use code white almost being used as a threat to the patient. You know, if you don't calm down, we're going to call a code white kind of thing. Not a good approach. Yeah. Kind of like I'm going to put you on a form. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Let's talk a little bit about the proper use of physical restraints. Dr. Thompson we should try avoiding using physical restraints when possible because they can cause injury, they can make the patient more agitated, and they can be construed as cruel punishment. So first, when should we use physical restraints? I would like to use them as a last resort. Like Ruben, I don't have a lot of time at the triage desk, which is where all of our code whites are called and our agitated patients would first present and a physician is called to triage to immediately see these patients. And if I try the verbal de-escalation, if I try offering and patient isn't receptive to that, if I even you know acknowledge that it looks like they might need some medications to help calm them down, would you like something and they won't you know agree to that? If there's harm involved, for example, they've attempted to hurt themselves or there's a risk of them hurting somebody else. Before I am able to get the medications into them that I might have ordered, then those are the circumstances where I would call for physical restraints in those cases. All right. Yeah, let's get into this a bit further. So there's holding down a patient so that you can give medications, and then there's putting patients in four or five-point physical restraints. But if you're holding them down to give medications, there's no medication that I know of that's a magic bullet that I can throw as a dart from across the room. It's going to hit them IM and they're immediately going to be calmed. So 
if I'm having to hold them down to give the medications, it's probably more humane to have them in four-point restraint or five-point restraint than it is to have five, six people continuing to hold until the medications work. My opinion. I have a different view. I think we do have access to medications that work quickly. And I think that the time that we spend putting patients in leather or plastic or cloth restraints is much better spent focusing on getting that medication into the patient as quickly as possible and holding that patient there for two, three, four, even five minutes, which is as long as it takes to get these medications to work effectively if you're using the right medications. The traditional approach to managing these patients is to think physical restraints first. And in every department I've ever worked, when a very agitated patient comes to the door, the response of the staff is to transfer them over to the gurney and apply physical restraints. This is harmful for a number of reasons. The appropriate response is to have people holding the patient down for only as long as it takes to get that patient calmed using an intramuscular injection. And the focus should be on calming medications and intramuscular medication and not on applying physical restraints. I think there is very little role for tight physical restraints in the emergency department. There is a role probably for loose restraints, for example, in demented older patients or in intubated patients that you want to keep at a light level of sedation. But for someone who is agitated, if they require physical restraints, what that means to the emergency providers, what that signals to the emergency provider is that that patient requires more calming medications. But it takes time for those to work is what I have seen in the past. And what I see is security officers who are sweating, who are then becoming more agitated because they're continuing to hold the patient. I know that there are, you know, good combination of medications that will calm them in five minutes. But I think that five minutes sometimes is very difficult on the rescuers. Suffice to say that we should minimize physical restraints and that if you do choose to put patients in physical restraints initially, that you should really be concentrating on getting that medication in as soon as possible so that the physical restraints then become irrelevant. Certainly. And then from there, the two options are to continue holding down the patient until the medication kicks in or to place physical restraints while the medication is kicking in over one or two or three or four or five minutes. Baby, let me hold your hand. Whether you're using physical restraints or simply holding down the patient, there are dangers associated with both of these things. You just go through for us what to avoid when it comes to holding down a patient and what to avoid when it comes to placing physical restraints. The most important thing to avoid when you're restraining a patient is dangerous restraint holds. And that includes covering up the mouth and nose, which you see frequently, and includes compression of the neck or of the chest. And when you're clued into this, you see it more often than you would think. A lot of these patients are big, strong men who provoke an aggressive response in folks who are trying to manage them pre-hospital. And they'll often come in with very aggressive restraint holds. And it's our role to identify those restraint holds that are dangerous and to alleviate those restraint holds. So I'm immediately looking for any covering of the mouth or nose, usually with a gloved hand, or any compression of the neck and chest. There was a restraint hold that was commonly used in decades past called the hobble position, uh, which was a patient who was put in the prone position with their hands tied to their ankles. 
Behind their back. Behind their back. This is no longer used, at least in North America, as far as I'm aware, because it's been associated with so many deaths. But the prone position in general should be avoided. Now, sometimes when you're dealing with a really big, strong person who's really agitated, it is not safe to take the patient away from a prone position. So you have to leave the person in prone position until you can get them calmed. Most of the time, you can flip that person on their back, get people off of the face and the neck and the chest, and alleviate those dangerous restraint holds. A lot of folks are concerned about patients spitting, and that's why they're covering up the mouth and nose, and that's where the oxygen mask comes in. Okay, so that's holding down the patient, what we should avoid when it comes to holding down the patient. What about the application of physical restraints? What kind of physical restraints should we be using? How many physical restraints? Where should they be applied? How should they be applied? So I'm not the expert in this area. I'm a toxicologist and an eMERGE doc. What physical restraints we have in our emergency department are soft restraints or leather restraints. Those are the only two options that we have. For sure, you should not do two-point restraint. You should use four-point, and you should have one arm above the head and one arm below the waist restrained to the bed frame, not the side rails. You should have you know, both of the lower extremities restrained as well. Occasionally, for the very violent patient, a chest restraint might be necessary as well. You want to make sure that it's not applied too tightly. And, of course, you want to make sure that there's good perfusion distally to any restraint and that the restraint is both not too difficult for the staff to get off and not too easy for the patient to get off. Okay. So just to review that, you want to use softer leather restraints, never two-point restraints because there have been case reports of injury with those. You're using four points with one arm above the head and then one arm below the waist. Below the waist, And never apply the restraints to the bed rails. You need to apply them to the bed frame itself. And also these should be supine patients with the head of the bed up slightly, not prone patients as Ruben suggested. Absolutely. And again, if we are going to apply the restraints, we need to be wary that the longer you apply them for, the more chance that they'll get an injury. And really, our goal should be to minimize the restraint time as much as possible. I think we should be minimizing the agitation time. And so that's the early delivery of medications that are going to help calm this patient. And hopefully, only up to five minutes where they have to have either physical or mechanical restraints, like someone holding the patient down or have them in mechanical restraints, and then release those as soon as possible. Because it's the fighting against people or fighting against restraints that is going to cause these patients a lot of morbidity. The rhabdomyolysis, the DIC, the hyperthermia, those potential complications. I think the point that Margaret's alluding to is that when you have physically restrained a severely agitated patient, you haven't made much progress. That patient is still a threat to himself, if not to others, through the ongoing physical struggle and still requires calming medications, still requires sedation to manage those threats and to manage the potential medical threats associated with his condition. It's also worth pointing out that there's this punitive or even sadistic element at work, especially in departments that see a lot of agitated patients. And this is something that's part of human nature. And I think it's worthwhile to point it out, recognize we're all susceptible to it and overcome it. 
Okay. And Dr. Strayer, you had mentioned placing an oxygen mask on the patient early in the process. Can you just explain to our listeners what the purpose of that is? So this is a really valuable technique in managing the severely agitated patient, especially the agitated patient who is spitting. It is not uncommon for agitated patients to spit at people who are trying to calm them down because it's one of the only tools they have to get back at the people who are holding them down. So they'll often come in with either a mask over their face, which is preventing them from breathing on some level, or a gloved hand over their face, which is very much preventing them from breathing. If you ask someone to just take their hand off of their face, they may not do that because they might say something like, you know, this guy's been spitting at me, I'm not taking my hand off the face. But if you come at that patient with an oxygen mask, they will take their hand off the face. And it's important to remember that some number of these patients are agitated because they're hypoxic. I've seen it. And when you apply oxygen to these patients, firstly, you control their spit. And then secondly, you're providing oxygen. We're going to get into the medications in just a second. For the severely agitated patient, there's not going to be much conversation with the person because they're pretty much incapable of having a conversation. But for those patients who you are able to interact with, what do you tell the patient before you actually give them the sedating medication or calming medication? Like Ruben has been suggesting, there is this degree of agitation. And as some patients who might be just calmed by offering them something and saying, what has worked for you in the past? Would you like me to give you something to help calm you down? So, you know, recognizing or saying to them, you seem to be very agitated. Can I give you something to help calm you down? So that might be something I say to a patient. In another case where they are more agitated and don't agree to that sort of help, you can suggest to the patient that we perceive or I perceive, I'm your doctor, that you're very agitated and you need something to help treat you right now. So we're giving this to you for your own good to help so that we can determine what's wrong with you. I don't have a whole lot to add to that. When I approach a patient who I'm considering using an oral medication, I'll often walk up to that patient and say some of those things like, how can we help you? Is there something I can give you to calm you down, something that would help you feel better? And their response to that question will help me know whether this is someone who's mildly agitated, engageable, redirectable, participating in my evaluation, and is therefore an appropriate candidate for an oral medication. If I offer them an oral medication and they tell me to go f myself, then I know that that person is not going to be a good candidate for an oral medication. It's going to require parenteral intramuscular administration of medications. They've sort of moved themselves into that moderately agitated group. So that segues very nicely into the best route of administration. So we've got the choice of IV, IM, PO, and intranasal. So you had already mentioned in the patient who's very cooperative, you might be able to use PO medications. In the moderately agitated or severely agitated patient, we won't be able to use PO medications. So What's the best route? IV, IM, intranasal? What do you think? There's a lot of culture in various departments around how to do this. And in one department where I worked that sees a ton of agitated patients, there was a strong decades-long culture of strapping the patient down and starting an IV to deliver intravenous medications. This is the wrong approach. And that it is wrong on a number of levels to try to start an IV on a thrashing patient Firstly, because you are less likely to be successful in a thrashing patient, it's going to require multiple attempts to start a line on many of these agitated patients because they're thrashing. Secondly, 
starting an IV on a thrashing patient runs the risk of a needle stick to the person starting the IV. If I were a nurse and someone asked me to start an IV on a thrashing patient, I would politely decline to do so. And I encourage any nurse or anyone who is asked to start an IV on a thrashing patient to politely decline to do so. The right route to give any moderately or severely agitated patient who requires calming medications is intramuscular. I am, I am, always I am. Theoretically, when you talk about delivery of medications, the most rapid way would be to give it intranasally or to give it intravenously. But as Ruben says, it's not possible on these patients and puts people at risk. So I would agree with Ruben that we have to use IM in these moderately to severely agitated patients in our emergency departments. We don't have intravenouses already established on them. All right. So in our discussion now about the choice of medications... What I'd like to do is divide it into the three categories that we've been talking about. We're going to be talking about the mildly agitated patient, the moderately agitated patient, and the severely agitated patient. So in each of those categories, what are your drugs of choice? Dr. Strayer, let's start with you. So for mild agitation, these are the folks who don't trouble us too much, and many of them can be managed without medications. They can be managed with verbal de-escalation techniques. They can be managed by having someone sit with them, talk to them. They can be managed with a sandwich. If they need something, you can ask them what works best for them, if it's a primary psych problem, or a small dose of your favorite benzodiazepine orally generally works pretty well. I'll give usually one or two milligrams of oral lorazepam to someone who just needs to chill, but is otherwise engageable, redirectable, not concerned about a dangerous condition. The moderately agitated patient, or what I call disruptive without danger, are much more common. These are the patients who come in often intoxicated, belligerent, intermittently redirectable. You can engage them briefly, but ultimately they're not engageable and they're disruptive to the department and they're going to require intramuscular calming medications. There's a ton of different meds you can use. Many of them are effective. Because these patients don't seem to have a dangerous condition, the priority is to not cause any harm with the medications that we use. And we're willing to sacrifice a little bit of sedation speed and sedation efficacy to make sure that we don't cause any harm with the meds that we use. My medications of choice in this group are haloperidol and midazolam or a combination. Droperidol was the best as monotherapy and was the most effective and the fastest. But in North America, we no longer have access to droperidol unless you work on one of the canvases that compounds their own droperidol, like the Mayo Clinic. Lucky guys. The rest of us are going to have to do with lesser drugs. Haloperidol is effective and does work by the intramuscular route, but has a rather delayed onset of action, has a number of problems that toxicologists often get very concerned about. Midazolam is always the benzodiazepine of choice when you're using it intramuscularly for whatever indication, whether that be agitation, withdrawal, seizures, whatever. It should always be midazolam when you're giving a benzodiazepine intramuscularly. That has a much quicker onset of action and is generally very effective, but and the doses required may cause respiratory depression and often does cause some degree of hypoventilation that you have to be vigilant for. So I'm generally reaching for a combination of haloperidol and midazolam. I tend to go pretty heavy on the haloperidol and lighter on the midazolam in, for example, your routine agitated drunk. 
Can you give us some rough dosages for the moderately agitated patient? So five milligrams to 10 milligrams of intramuscular haloperidol, two milligrams to five milligrams of intramuscular midazolam in the same syringe delivered into the deltoid. All right, we're going to get into all the controversies around QT, prolongation, and seizure threshold changes with haloperidol. But before we do, Dr. Thompson, your go-to for the mildly agitated patient and the moderately agitated patient, and then we'll get on to the severely agitated patient. So like Ruben, for the mildly agitated patient, I go to benzodiazepines. I believe that there's lots of reasons why patients are agitated that might involve GABA receptors. And so giving them a GABA agonist is what my go-to medication is. And I'm fairly aggressive with my GABA sort of medications. If I'm giving it sublingual, I will go to lorazepam. Or PO, I'll go to lorazepam. If I'm using the IM route, then I will be using midazolam for a couple of different reasons. Diazepam itself has very poor intramuscular absorption, so not a drug that I'm going to be going for. Lorazepam, in my emergency department, has to be kept in a refrigerator and is locked up. That delays the time that I can get that medication sometimes by five minutes. So I'm going to go for midazolam, which I can titrate. I tend to use, you know, five milligrams IM of midazolam to start before I have got them calm enough to be able to start an intravenous or, you know, do any other further assessment to determine what the cause of their agitation might be. I am less aggressive with haloperidol. I will use haloperidol. It does take a significantly long time for it to onset of action. And I tend to find that those patients linger in my emergency department for many handovers. You know, doses of 5 to 10 milligrams of IM haloperidol leave patients in my emergency department for 8, 12, 16 hours, still so unresponsive that you can't safely let them go home, even if you've identified that they don't have an emergent or worrisome medical condition. So I don't like to use big doses of that for that reason. All right. Is it safe to say that as a general dose for the moderately agitated patient, two of midazolam and five of haloperidol, that we should be replacing the old two and five of lorazepam and haloperidol with two and five of midazolam and haloperidol for your moderately agitated patient as sort of a general go-to? When you're dealing with a moderately agitated patient, you can often figure out why they're agitated and you can tailor your therapies to whatever the cause of their agitation is. So if it's clearly a primary psychiatric problem, you can tailor your therapy to that primary psychiatric problem. If it's alcohol withdrawal, that's the problem. You're going to tailor your therapy to the alcohol withdrawal. In most cases, places where I work, these moderately disruptive patients, moderately agitated patients are intoxicated, usually with alcohol, plus or minus other substances. And I have found that a combination of Haldol and midazolam works very well for them. When I try to use midazolam as monotherapy, it works very, very well. But to use enough midazolam to reliably sedate your big, strong, agitated drunk, I get concerned about respiratory depression, and I've seen it dozens and dozens of times. So I hedge against the development of respiratory depression because I don't want to put these patients on a monitor because in places where I work, we can get 15 of them in a night. 
So they end up in an unmonitored bed. And so I have to be careful about the drugs that I use, which is why I use higher doses of haloperidol, smaller doses of midazolam. Margaret's concern around people getting big doses of haldol lingering in the department is totally valid, and some of them do. But many of these patients who come in with blood alcohol levels over 300 or 400 U.S. units are going to be lingering in your department sort of no matter what. And the priority from my perspective is to make sure that I can take care of all the other patients in the department and I need to make them stop screaming. So your relative dosages of your midazolam versus haloperidol will depend on many factors, the presumed cause of their agitation in the first place and your local resources in terms of monitoring as well as how much you're going to worry about respiratory depression. I would agree. I think there isn't a lot of evidence that benzodiazepines take away hallucinations. And so if you have a patient who is hallucinating, whether it be from alcohol withdrawal or sedative hypnotic withdrawal or because of a primary psychiatric problem, I think I agree with Ruben, you have to add the haloperidol to the benzodiazepine. I don't let these patients sit on an unmonitored bed for the most part. What we're able to do and what I require all the time is that they have a CO2 monitor on them so that I can be sure with my benzodiazepine dosing that their PCO2 is not climbing. So that's the way I monitor my potential adverse effect. If you have the capacity to put these patients on a monitor, I think it's very reasonable to forego haloperidol in many of these cases and just use big doses of midaz. Almost all the time, it's going to be safe. It's not going to cause significant hypoventilation, and it's going to be effective. When I'm putting a patient on a monitor, I'm going to use 5 to 10 of midaz. Because I can't put most of these patients on a monitor, I have to lower my dose of midazolam, and I supplement the sedative effect of the midazolam with the haloperidol. So you get the kick of the haloperidol, but you get the fast onset of the midazolam. And there's a synergism that's been demonstrated in a couple of studies recently between the two of them to give you more total a sedative punch with the combination. Fair enough. All right, let's move on to the severely agitated patient then. Your drug of choice and dosages of choice for the severely agitated patient. So the patient that is completely uncontrollable, thrashing around, Dr. Thompson... Let me tell you that it makes the nurses very uncomfortable, but I will order doses of five milligrams per kilo of ketamine and give that intramuscular to those patients because that's the magic dart as best as we have for that severely agitated patient. My choice makes the nurses really uncomfortable, but I'm giving it IM as compared to IV and the doses that they're more used to are one to two milligrams per kilogram when you're giving it to them intravenously. All right. We'll get into more details about ketamine, but just your go-to, would it be the same, Dr. Strayer, five milligrams per kilogram of ketamine IM? Yes. For the patient who is uncontrollably violent or has severe agitation and you're very concerned that there's a dangerous condition, I think ketamine is the right choice. Five milligrams per kilogram is a great dose. I generally simplify it and just give a normal-sized adult 500 milligrams and just call it a day. There are a group of severely agitated patients where I'm a little bit less concerned about a dangerous condition and I don't want to stand at bedside for the next 20 minutes, which is what is required if you're going to dissociate a patient with ketamine. And so in that case, 
these patients are all going to be going on a monitor for sure, but I'll just use really big doses of Haldol and midazolam. Typically, I'll start with 10 and 10, so 10 milligrams of midazolam and 10 to 15 milligrams of haloperidol, and that's going to take care of 90% of severe agitation. Definitely ready to move to ketamine if it doesn't work expeditiously, but for the patient, again, who can't be controlled or more relevantly, where I feel like I really need to pivot to resuscitation, where I need to pivot from control to resuscitation, it's going to be 500 milligrams of ketamine, usually into the thigh or buttock because of the large volume that's required to give 500 milligrams. And then as soon as you give that dissociative dose, as soon as the patient starts to calm down and dissociate, that patient needs to be managed in the way of a procedural sedation patient with full intubation setup, all your equipment ready, airway capable provider at bedside continuously. All right, so we've got two choices really then for the severely agitated patient. It's about 500 milligrams of ketamine IM with full monitoring, of course, and preparation for RSI if you need to go that way. And the other option, if you're not going to use ketamine, is high doses of Haldol and midazolam, like 10 and 10. All right, I want to talk a little bit more about antipsychotics. We've been talking about haloperidol so far. What about the so-called atypical antipsychotics? I understand there's a lot of literature comparing atypicals versus typicals in the psychiatric literature. For the agitated patient in the emergency department, would you ever consider using something besides haloperidol? I have never used anything different except, you know, the mildly agitated patient who's a psychiatric patient, loxapine PO seems to be the drug of choice for our psychiatrists. That's not the patient that I'm particularly worried about. And if that's what the patient says works best for them, I'm fine with that. Or a number of other different oral antipsychotics for those particular conditions. But for immediate control of the moderately to severely agitated patient, I've only used haloperidol. And psychiatrists tend to be very regionally preferential on which antipsychotics they prefer based on whatever drug rep they've seen most recently. (laughs) For the patient who has moderate or more severe agitation, a lot of folks like intramuscular olanzapine. And there's a fair amount of literature demonstrating that it works. I've never used it mostly because it costs five times as much as generics and has never been proven to be any better than the generics. So I stick with haloperidol. All right. Well, that simplifies things, which is nice. Haloperidol and midazolam and the dosages you're going to use are going to depend on the multiple factors that we talked about in this very severely agitated patient, ketamine. When it comes to the antipsychotics, though, Dr. Thompson, my understanding is that haloperidol actually lowers the seizure threshold. So in a patient, for example, who's in alcohol withdrawal, the last thing you want to do is lower the seizure threshold with haloperidol and cause a seizure. So I want you to show me the evidence where haloperidol lowers the seizure threshold. Okay, wait. If you go back... This is what you told me when I I was a resident... (laughs) But if you go back to the literature, Anton, there are, you know, a number of case reports in very early literature, 1930s, 1940s, not controlled for a multitude of different medical conditions that might be underlying and polypharmacy that may be involved in the care of that patient or the presentation of that patient. And so I am not as convinced 
that that it will lower the seizure threshold. And the other kind of study that seems to be out there is the one which is adverse drug reaction reporting, which is all voluntary or, you know, it happens that the physician thinks, well, maybe I should report this to Health Canada. And so those are voluntary reports, number one. And if you look at some of that literature, there actually are very few haloperidol-related seizures. And again, because these are just big databases, we don't know much else about the patient to be able to say cause and effect. All right. And I'm assuming that every time you use haloperidol, if you're using midazolam with it, that will, treating the seizure. that will be treating it anyhow. So the bottom line then is that for our purposes in the emergency department, we really don't have to worry about lowering the seizure threshold with Haldol. That being said, using Haldol without midazolam in high doses probably isn't a good idea anyhow, so it really isn't an issue. I don't issue. think anybody ever advocates just for haloperidol without a benzodiazepine to go with it. I think for someone that you know is simply alcohol intoxicated, it's reasonable to give haldol monotherapy if they're not if they don't need to be sedated right now, if they just need to be sedated sometime in the next 30 minutes, then giving five milligrams of haloperidol is a reasonable strategy. Most of the time, I'm combining it with a benzodiazepine. I'm really heartened to hear those comments from the mouth of a toxicologist. I think many of Margaret's colleagues disagree with her, and I've heard many of her colleagues strongly warn those of us who have been big proponents of using the butorphanone neuroleptics as agitation therapy that they are linked to lowering the seizure threshold. They're linked to all these other extrapyramidal side effects, hyperthermia, and those arguments, which are decades old, I think carried some water based on theoretical concerns around how these drugs work until we got a bunch of data. And we can thank the Australians for the half dozen to dozen really big, important studies on neuroleptic butorphanone stroperidol in this case that they've demonstrated to be safe and effective really unequivocally. And so I don't think that those arguments that Haloperidol is going to cause harm either by lowering the seizure threshold or by prolonging the QT, carry any water anymore. So there's no controversy in this room. All right. Wow. So we don't even have to get into the details of prolongation of QT with haloperidol, with the extrapyramidal symptoms. You know, I understand that some people will add diphenhydramine to their haldol just to prevent extrapyramidal symptoms. Is that something that you think about in the emergency department? I haven't personally been doing that in my practice. I haven't seen a lot of extrapyramidal symptoms occurring secondary to it. But again, that may just be a biased practice because I see them in the immediate now. And, you know, 24 hours later when they come back with a dystonic reaction, I may not be the emergency physician that's working and retrieving the chart and finding out that that patient had a dose of haloperidol 24 hours ago. I haven't seen that a lot in my own personal practice, I guess is what I'm saying, but I'm aware that it can happen. Do I want to give more patients even more sedation than they might need for that 1% to 2% chance of it occurring? And we're using fairly low doses relatively of haloperidol when we're sedating some of these mildly or moderately agitated patients compared to what they might get for therapeutics for the schizophrenic patient, for example. There's going to be a lot of listeners out there who are worried about prolongation of QT with some of these antipsychotic medications. What does the literature say about 
prolong QT and which patients we would withhold those medications. I'm assuming that if someone has a known prolonged QT that you wouldn't give aloperidol, for example, but aside from that patient, uh, is there any other patient that you... Or many other antipsychotics, truly. Yeah. If you know that they had prolonged QTC or you knew that they happened to be on many other medications that cause prolonged QTC at the same time, mm. or you've already given them multiple doses of QTC-prolonging drugs in your emergency department, but these are you know, not possible in the moderately to severely agitated patient that you have to take down fairly quickly, you're not going to get that information. And certainly you're not going to have time to do that cardiogram and interpret it when they're agitated and fighting five strong security officers before you can get them under control. Sure. So in the patient that has mild agitation, where you have time, where you can look up their past medical history, where you can get the medications that they're on, you know, in those patients... Should we be trying to get an ECG before we give them an antipsychotic? Or even in that situation, you don't think it really matters? I think if you look at the evidence in normal volunteers of how much haloperidol can prolong your QTC, it's milliseconds. And just because you prolong your QTC to be greater than 500 doesn't mean you're going to go into torsade either. So... I think that it's significantly overkill to try and get a cardiogram unless there's some family history or some previous reason for you to be worried when you're considering giving haloperidol to anybody. But in the moderately to severely agitated patient, even the patient that's, you know, an alcohol withdrawal or alcohol intoxication that you have to sedate in the emergency department, it's totally unreasonable to think that they're at significant risk and the incidence of torsade must be negligible in that patient population, especially with haloperidol, which doesn't prolong it that much compared to some of the other antipsychotics. Mm-hmm. So safe to say that in a patient who is an alcoholic, who is an alcohol intoxicated, which apparently can prolong your QT, who's also on... Prevacid so, and yeah. erythromycin <laughs> exactly. and... <laughs> then, of course, you wouldn't be jumping to haloperidol. But for the vast majority of patients, haloperidol is safe. And especially for the severely agitated patient, for whatever reason, you can't give ketamine. You certainly wouldn't think twice about giving haloperidol in those patients because of the QT. So that's a little bit about the antipsychotics and when we shouldn't and when we should be worried about giving antipsychotics. I want to talk a little bit more detail about ketamine. So... Intuitively, I always thought that if you take a tachycardic, sweaty, jacked-up guy and then you give him a whopping dose of ketamine, that doesn't really make sense because ketamine is going to increase your blood pressure and increase your heart rate. And I never really understood how that could be a safe thing. So could you just explain to our listeners why giving ketamine in a severely agitated patient is safe, knowing that it may increase your heart rate and your blood pressure in someone who already has probably a very high rate in blood pressure. It turns out that it doesn't do that. Most of the experience we have using ketamine is in relatively calm patients who are receiving ketamine for procedural sedation. Ketamine is a weak sympathomimetic, and in those patients, especially older patients with calcified vasculature, you're going to see 
some increase in heart rate, sometimes significant and often fairly robust increases in blood pressure. This does not apply to the person who is already ramped up with catecholamines. We know now from data that when you give ketamine to an agitated hyperdynamic patient, that those vital signs will normalize. You don't have to be concerned about ketamine's sympathomimetic effect in someone who is already sympathetically on overdrive. I couldn't say it any better. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Now, there's some literature on a whole slew of other medications that we haven't talked about. You know, there's dexmedetomidine, there's zeprazidone, there's a few others. Any role for any of these in the ED? There's some interesting data on inhaled loxapine. I've never used it, I've never seen it, but it's an interesting novel delivery system for potentially a moderately agitated patient, not a severely agitated patient, who you don't want to get close to with a needle because they're developmentally delayed or something like that, and they might freak out with a needle, but you think you could very easily sedate them with an inhaled medication. So maybe in some of those patients. I've never used it again, but there's now a few papers that show that nebulized loxapine is effective for agitation. So another arrow in our quiver. Not sure there's a huge role, but maybe some role. I'm excited about the prospect of using intramuscular dexamethotomidine for agitation. I think intravenous dexamethotomidine has complex pharmacokinetics that make it difficult to use. But for a moderately agitated patient without a lot of concern for a dangerous condition, there may be a role for IM dexamethotomidine. There's no studies on it yet that I'm aware of, but I think now that the drug is generic and is going to become more widely available, we may see a role for dexamethotomidine's unique pharmacology. Up till now, we've been talking about the young adult with agitation, and in an inner city hospital, that's going to be the majority of your agitated patients. However, we haven't really talked about the older patient with agitation. Now, where I work at Northwark General Hospital, it's actually far more common to have the scenario of the 85-year-old from a nursing home who's screaming and agitated in your department. How is the management of these patients different than the management of the younger patient when it comes to agitation? Well, the older patient is much more sensitive to benzodiazepines, respiratory depression. So I personally would not use a benzodiazepine in this patient population unless I knew for certain that this was an alcohol withdrawal or sedative hypnotic withdrawal sort of state that I was dealing with. I go very low doses of haloperidol, try and give it to them orally if they'll accept it. You may have to give it to them IM. Start low, go slow, like with all medications. Avoid benzos when you can. Small doses of haloperidol have worked very well for me. There is a robust literature on that. Clinicians in my circles seem to love the newer antipsychotics in this population in particular and swear by small doses of risperidone or olanzapine in this group. So you got some options there. I think the big take-home point there is to avoid benzodiazepines in the elderly. They're associated with poor outcomes, respiratory depression. They'll last forever. You know, they'll be sedated for far longer than you want them to be sedated for. And so going for an antipsychotic, whether that be haloperidol or some of the newer ones like olanzapine or asperidone or quetiapine, depending on perhaps what they've been on before. And just make sure to keep your doses really small. Start low, go slow. Absolutely. 
in all our talk about agitation, we haven't talked about the underlying diagnosis. And the worry in all of these patients is whatever's causing their agitation could be something that kills them. So Dr. Strayer, can you explain to our listeners your stepwise approach to figuring out what's going on that's causing the agitation and managing any life-threatening problems that they might have? In the mild and moderately agitated patients, you can do a history and physical, and you can tailor your therapies generally to the history and the physical. You can get information from them to determine what's going on. In the severely agitated patients, your history and physical is much more limited, and so you have to have a more protocoled approach. And I think about it in groups, going from the most immediately life-threatening to the less immediately life-threatening. So hypoxia, hyperthermia, hypoglycemia, and hypovolemia are the things you want to manage in the first minutes of your resuscitation of these severely agitated patients. Then you're going to start in with serum investigations and things like hyperkalemia, acidemia. Many of these patients are going to get a head CT for a good reason. And then some of them should get an LP. Meningitis, encephalitis is an important cause of severe agitation. That's not to say that every patient who's severely agitated needs a CTLP, but ask the question, does this patient need a CTLP? Sedative withdrawal, serotonin syndrome, NMS, thyrotoxicosis, sepsis, other electrolyte disturbances, and rhabdomyolysis is an important consequence of agitation as well as trauma, which can be occult in this group. All right. So let's just review there what you said. I love that. That's a great approach. So in the first minutes, really the primary things you should be thinking of are hypoxemia, hyperthermia, hypoglycemia, and hypovolemia, all four of which you can at least start to fix relatively quickly. Then your kind of next layer is hyper-K, acidemia, and then CNS stuff like CNS infections, intracranial hemorrhage. And then after that, the next layer is sedative withdrawal, serotonin syndrome, neuroleptic malignant syndrome, thyrotoxicosis, sepsis, electrolytes, rhabdo, and of course, we can never forget that these patients may have a serious traumatic injury as well. So we've just kind of listed off the priorities. Could you just go through for us, let's say you have the severely agitated patient, you've just given them, let's say, ketamine. They're beginning to calm down. What are the logistics that you're going through? What steps are you actually going to do so that those four things, the hypoxemia, hyperthermia, hypoglycemia, and hypovolemia are taken care of? What kind of orders are you giving? Can you just give our listeners an idea of kind of the logistics and steps that you're going to be going through at the bedside? Sure. These uh, patients come in with severe agitation. They're being held down. The crucial step here is to recognize this patient is severely agitated, may have an excited delirium, and requires the immediate expeditious provision of calming medications that are going to allow you to take control of the patient immediately and commence resuscitation. So in this case, you've given them five milligrams per kilogram of intramuscular ketamine while they're being held down. In a matter of two, three, four minutes, that patient is going to start to relax as they become dissociated. As soon as that happens, you pivot from control, which you've now established, to resuscitation. And that means moving them to the appropriately monitored setting, which is generally going to be a resuscitation bed, putting them on full cardiorespiratory monitoring with telemetry, blood pressure monitoring, continuous pulse oximetry, capnography if that's available, and then a rectal temperature. You're going to place at least one, probably two lines, and almost all these patients are going to benefit from an empiric bolus of crystalloid. So I would just give it straight off the bat. You're going to get a finger stick and send a blood gas. 
And that's going to take care of the diagnostics and the immediate therapeutics for the most important life threats in the first five minutes. Once you've addressed and excluded those life threats, you're then going to be moving on to your standard serum investigations and a head CT plus minus LP in the same way that you would manage any other hyperthermic agitated patient or sick patient that requires resuscitation. And Dr. Thompson, based on your 25 plus years of experience- uh, You're dating me now. <laughs> Aging me. <laughs> seasoned. She's seasoned. Yeah. Experienced. Yes. <laughs> Um, of seeing these patients, what's kind of your approach once you've calmed these patients down? What's your approach to working them up and managing them? You have to get full set of vital signs, which includes a glucose and oxygen saturation, et cetera, et cetera. The monitors that he's talking about, I don't think I have anything different to add other than saying cast a wide net, completely, completely disrobe your patient and examine them from head to toe, back to front, I've seen a severely agitated patient who was just in pain. Granted, he was, you know, alcohol intoxicated, but when he was completely disrobed, he had a ligature around his scrotum and his penis, and they were necrotic. So that you don't want to miss these, you know, obvious things that had you completely disrobed your patient, you would have found the clue to. Great. I love the combination of Dr. Strayer's approach to rule out the most deadly things first. And then in combination with that, the great just practical points of, you know, completely examining your patient, going back to sort of the basics, not to miss anything because pretty much anything that we can think of could cause agitation. I want to get a little bit more into airway considerations. So, Dr. Strayer, what are the airway considerations we need to be aware of when it comes to the altered, agitated patient? You know, right from before we get them calmed down, right through until after we've given them either ketamine or, say, haloperidol plus midazolam. With regard to the airway management in agitated patients, the main issue you encounter in airway management around agitated patients has to do with their combativeness, which doesn't allow you to adequately prepare and pre-oxygenate. Performing RSI on a patient who is not pre-oxygenated is really dangerous. So you should not perform RSI on a patient who's inadequately pre-oxygenated. This is the role for DSI, delayed sequence intubation, which involves giving a dissociative dose of ketamine, either IM or IV, and then carrying on with preparation and pre-oxygenation once the patient is adequately pre and you're ready to go, you then push your paralytic and perform laryngoscopy or, or your favorite airway modality. Another important airway consideration in agitation is your use of a paralytic. Succinylcholine is best avoided in general, in my opinion, but it's specifically in this group where hyperkalemia, acidemia, and hyperthermia are more prevalent. Some of these patients have severe acidemia from fighting against restraints or the underlying metabolic problems. And in that case, if you know that they have severe acidemia prior to intubating, which you might see with end tidal, if you use that, or if you have a blood gas, then you want to hyperventilate those patients prior to RSI. And then immediately after RSI, you can usually do that with non-invasive ventilation. Most of the time, though, acidemia in these patients is caused by the underlying agitation, and you can address that acidemia by addressing the underlying agitation 
with your calming medications. To get a bit of a different perspective on the agitated patient from a Canadian researcher with a special interest in the topic, it's my pleasure to welcome back to the show Dr. David Barbick from Vancouver, who you may remember from the main episode on managing the obese patient in the ED. So, so far in this podcast, we've covered about a dozen topics. The importance of managing agitation well and having an approach, how to assess the degree of agitation, the goals of sedation, non-pharmacologic approaches to agitation, use of restraints, the timing, the correct technique, uh, pharmacologic options, including the root, QT concerns, pharmacological options for the older adult, monitoring, approach to the underlying diagnosis, and next moves after you've calmed the patient, and even airway considerations. I understand, Dr. Barbick, that your shop sees tons of agitated patients and that you're currently conducting an RCT on the topic. What's your perspective as an EM researcher and as an eMERGE doc who works in an inner city hospital environment? Well, thanks again, Anton, for having me on the show. It's a real honor and pleasure to be back. So to give a bit of background, I'm a practicing emergency physician and researcher at St. Paul's Hospital in Vancouver. We're a busy inner city academic center that sees about 90,000 patients a year. And about 15 to 20% of that is mental health or substance related. And on average, we see about one to three patients with agitation slash agitated delirium on a daily basis in the department, not individually. And one of the big things for me is to sort of reinforce something that was touched on earlier is the agitation or agitated delirium is a cardinal presentation. It's not an overall diagnosis. There is very often pathology lurking beneath and it's our job to find that pathology. Um, these patients require a very thorough assessment and workup. Unfortunately, one of the things that I've seen is that these patients get sedated and we walk out of the room. Uh, that's the easy thing to do, but unfortunately, it's not the right thing to do. They require a very thorough head-to-toe physical exam. You have to expose every inch of their body. Um, they need blood work, and they don't need the million-dollar workup in terms of blood work, but I would say a bare minimum, they need a CBC, a chemistry panel, um, possibly uh, additional sort of toxicology blood work, into, including an alcohol and an osmolality. You probably require an ECG. Um, and then sort of clinician's discretion, whether you need a, a chest x-ray and or a CT scan of their head. And obviously, based on what you find on your exam and your blood work, possibly other imaging and investigations. And I think one of the other things that was hinted at by a couple of the um, very experienced uh, Dr. Thompson and and Dr. Strayers is that um, these patients require regular vital signs. Ideally, Q five minutes for the first half hour that they're in your department or Q hour when they're in your department. So they need to be in a monitored setting. And my preference would be in a resuscitation setting or a trauma room setting. Um, These patients can deteriorate and change very rapidly. After that initial period, they're probably okay to go to a non-monitored bed, but for the first 30 minutes to hour, they probably required fairly intensive monitoring. And ideally, an IV once they have received some sedation so that they can get IV fluids and if necessary, PRN sedation. Um, Now to touch on ketamine. So ketamine is a very promising agent for this patient population. The current evidence out there is promising, yet not definitive, and hence the reason we are performing our trial at St. Paul's. I strongly urge emergency physicians not to give 500 milligrams 
to all patients. For many, this will be too much. And for some, it will actually be too little. I know that seems hard to, hard to fathom, but for some patients, the big muscular, ultra combative, 120 kilo guy, 500 may not be enough. I would strongly urge that you take 10 seconds with your nursing staff as they're being restrained by your security and or police and take a rough estimate at their weight in kilograms and then order five milligrams per kilogram. Ideally, this can be delivered in the anterolateral thigh. It will likely take two injections if you're using the 50 milligrams per ml solution that is common in most Canadian emergency departments. Unfortunately, we don't have access to the 100 milligrams per ml version that is available in the United States, but hopefully in the near future we will. And then our experience, our preliminary data says that it acts very rapidly and that would seem to align with the initial information that we have from other centers and from individual clinicians experience. Fantastic. Those are three really great points. Um, just to review there, one, that agitation or agitated delirium isn't a diagnosis in itself, and you really need to be actively pursuing the underlying diagnosis as soon as the patient's sedated, that instead of doing what many of us tend to do, walk away from the patient after they're sedated, you really need to do a thorough head-to-toe physical, a thoughtful workup, and frequent vitals. And then lastly, that although the EM community is super gung-ho about ketamine for so many different things, The evidence in the agitated patient is not quite definitive yet, and that you should dose ketamine carefully if you are going to use it. Dr. Barber, can you tell us a little bit more about the ketamine study that's ongoing at St. Paul's, uh, just so we can keep our ears and eyes out when it is published? Absolutely. We're currently enrolling patients in a double-bonded randomized control trial, single center, looking at ketamine, five milligrams per kilogram, versus a combination of midazolam and haloperidol, five milligrams of midazolam and five milligrams of haloperidol for the control of agitated and violent patients presenting to the emergency department. Our primary outcome for the trial is time to sedation using the Richmond Agitation Sedation Scale. And then we're measuring and observing multiple secondary outcomes, including sedation outcomes, safety outcomes, and other similar adverse events. Great. Well, thanks so much, Dr. Barbick, for your amazing insights. I'm really looking forward to the results of your RCT. Uh, best of luck with the rest of the study. Thank you so much for having me on the podcast again, Anton. So we've covered what we know to date in 2018 about agitation. What are your hopes for the next 5 or 10 or 15 years when it comes to the management of agitated patients? What are you hoping will become sort of standard across emergency departments around the world in terms of how we manage agitated patients? I'm hoping that we'll see liberal democracies flourish and we'll take better care of people more generally so that fewer people will come into the emergency department with uncontrolled agitation. And that the prejudice against these patients is lost, that the you know the old school of... 15,000 people attacking these patients and that the rigid 4.5 point restraint isn't automatic, that that there's better research goes into some of the medications that we have available to us, that there is something developed in the future that's completely safe and works within one minute of giving it IM. There's a whole bunch of future 
aspirations. <laughs> but that's the way with any intoxicated patient or any patient who is perceived to be doing self-harm. Mm-hmm. There's so much to think about in terms of thinking as, of your emergency department as an outward facing emergency department that, you know, our job isn't over just when we've calmed the patient, you know, that there's a whole lot to be done after these patients move on from the emergency department that we can play an important role in. And of course, as Dr. Strayer had mentioned, everyone in society could probably play a role in helping ensure that the patients like these don't get agitated in the first place. So thank you very much, Dr. Strayer, and thank you very much, Dr. Thompson, for your incredible insights into the world of the agitated patient. Pleasure was mine. Thanks, Anton. Always learn something. The F word? You can't, you can't, you don't believe it. iTunes might take it off. Or they'll put like um, explicit. <laughs> okay. Serious. Okay, you don't do you don't do cursing in on EM cases. I didn't realize this was a family appropriate um, show. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, that was perfectly said. I can put a beep in. There Just beep too. it. Bleep I'll it. beep yeah, it. Yeah. <laughs>